www.thpodcraft.com. In the end, the three men from Arkham, old, white-bearded Dr. Armitage, stocky, iron-gray Professor Rice, and lean, youngish Dr. Morgan, ascended the mountain alone. After much patient instruction regarding its focusing and use, they left the telescope with the frightened group that remained in the road, and as they climbed, they were watched closely by those among whom the glass was passed around. It was hard going, and Armitage had to be helped more than once. High above the toiling group, the great swath trembled as its hellish maker repassed with snail-like deliberateness. Then it was obvious that the pursuers were gaining. That is the first paragraph from chapter 10 of the Dunwich Horror story by H.P. Lovecraft that we are covering here on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com, and I am co-host Chris Lackey. With me, as always, Chad Pfeiffer. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) What happened? Uh, Chad, we've been kind of neck deep in the Dunwich Horror for the last last month here. It's a good place to be. I I love it. it. I love the story so much. And, you know, I, I, I don't... I don't hate, but I try not to bring up the, the role-playing game too much. Mm-hmm. But this particular story, I really feel like, is where that game came from. Well, yeah, and also because this is story is somewhat of an anomaly because it's the heroes win. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's these heroes get together, they band together, they figure out what's going on, they get their books and they do the research, and then they go out and they freaking solve the problem. Yeah, spoiler and, alert. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but but you know that's why uh, I think St. Joshi had written that he's not as big a fan of this story. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's just not as pure kind of Lovecraft philosophy or worldview. You know, the world, the the universe is an unforgiving place, and that, that you can't win at something. And and I have to say though that you know there's the big speech about how Yog Sothoth will eventually come, and it's it's going to happen. The the old ones are going to come back at some point, and I still think that this really fits within the framework because it's just sure. temporarily stopped. Yeah, all they did was save this little backwater village. Ultimately, I'm sure Yogg-Sothoth will find a way. Yeah, I mean, Yogg-Sothoth is beyond space and time. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, some people aren't going to be able to, to stop it ultimately. Yeah. And I think that that still seems pretty obvious in the story. Now, sure. there is a kind of a, a happy ending to it, so to speak, because the, the heroes prevail. They don't go insane at the end of it. They save the town of Dunwich. So happy ending for now. For now. It's basically what it is. But, you know, I don't care. that it's, I, I've got room for all of it. There's plenty of despairing Lovecraft stories. I like to have one where the heroes Exactly. I'm with you, too. It's good to... Yeah. I, I don't know. It just kind of gets you excited. Mm-hmm. We read a lot of Lovecraft, Chad. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. And it's nice to get a, a story that's a bit of a change-up. Yeah, exactly. Now, uh, there's almost a joke. We ended (laughs) in the last chapter and at the end of our last show, it was these three heroes from Miskatonic about to confront the monster. And they had a whole gaggle of guys with them. There were a bunch of dudes from the the countryside in Dunwich there who had, had gone and said, what's the plan? And they followed him out to the ruins of this house. 
And that's the end of chapter nine when Armitage is like, all right, let's go. And then when we get to chapter 10, it's just those three guys yeah. going up the mountain and all the dudes are standing there with a the telescope. We see that everybody's ready to go. We cut to commercial and then when we come back, it's just those three guys. <laughs> it's so funny. Armitage gives him the telescope and just says, right. you watch from here. We're going to go up and deal with this. Because I don't think there's much that those guys are, would be able to really do in this particular circumstance. Well, it also provides a great um, Lovecraftian situation. I mean, he really crafted an interesting way to play out the climax of the story, yeah. which is guys who aren't actually up there. He doesn't have to tell you what they say, and he doesn't have to dramatize it so much, because it might end up being sort of cheesy if he did that. Instead, we're going to witness everything with the men of Dunwich who can only see it through a spyglass. Right, right. So it's it's an interesting way to, to frame the situation, uh, to avoid cheesiness. Yeah, exactly. It, it kind of filters that, because if we focused with Armitage, then we would, it would have to be Armitage says, Chukalaga, Mugalaga, Diga, and then he waves his hands around and you know what I mean? Like it, that stuff can be really silly, but it becomes mysterious right. and, and strange. We're with the people of Dunwich trying to figure out what mm-hmm. is it they're doing? It looks like he's waving his arms around. I don't know. It, it, we can only see silhouettes yeah. from where we are in the, cl- you know, the right. sky's getting dark and oh, it's, yeah. it's a really cool way to, to do it. Yeah. And it starts with Curtis uh, Waitley. Yeah who's got the telescope and says, hey, hey, they're, they're basically, they're flanking the thing. We can, they can see the trees moving, that the thing is moving up Sentinel Hill towards the top, but that these guys have kind of broken out by a different route so they can get up ahead of mm-hmm. it. Then another guy grabs the telescope from him and says, hey, hey, Armitage, he's checking on that insect spray. I think they're going to they're gonna use that. And, uh, and Curtis says, what? Let me see it. And he grabs the telescope back and he looks as Rice takes that insect sprayer and just unleashes this sort of cloud yeah. of dust at the moving invisible thing. And whatever it is that he reveals when he does that, we don't get a no because Curtis drops the telescope and screams like a girl, right? Right, right. <laughs> well, we do know because after he screams like a girl, it's like, Curtis, what, you know, what, what did you see? And then he explains what it was that he saw. Bigger in a barn, all made of squirm and ropes. Whole thing sort of shaped like a hen's egg, bigger than anything, with dozens of legs like hogs' heads that half shut up when they step. Nothing solid about it. Oh, like jelly and made a set wriggling ropes pushed close together. Great bulging eyes all over it. Ten or twenty mouths or trunks are sticking out all along the sides, big as stovepipes, and all a-tossing and opening and shutting, all grey with kind of blue or purple rings. God in heaven, that half face on top. Oh. Oh, so boy. we get that's a description of, of the Dunwich Horror. That's it. It's this giant egg-shaped thing that's made up of like a bunch of ropes, and there's eyes all over it. It's just, oh, my God. It's... And that half face on top, uh, Robert Price, who was with us for his first couple shows, he had made reference to that earlier. Yeah, later later on in this chapter, they say that the, the half face looks like old Wizard Watley. I mean, the thing is clearly related to that family. It's pretty pretty horrible, but we don't know that yet. Now, Curtis collapses before he can say anything more to describe that half face on top. That's just the last thing he says that sort of knocks him out. Right. And the guys grab the telescope again, and they look up, and they can only see the three men. They're just, like, running up to the summit. Of the yeah. Whippoorwills are starting up again everywhere. The men get to the summit. Earl Sawyer grabs the telescope, and he sees that one of the men is raising his hands in rhythmic intervals, and, and they think they can hear some faint chanting of some kind. And somebody even says, I guess he's saying the spell. Yeah. <laughs> now they see that all of the men are raising their arms, and, and lightning is starting to form in the sky, and and there's this rumbling sound brewing beneath the hills and all the dogs are starting to go nuts and howl and bark from a nearby farmhouse. And then there are some deep, cracked, raucous vocal sounds that are as loud as the rumbling of the thunder. And they sound like no human voice. And yet they're definitely 
words of some kind. <laughs> rang the hideous croaking out of space. Everything's the speaking impulse seemed to falter here, as if some frightful psychic struggle were going on. Henry Wheeler strained his eye at the telescope, but saw only the three grotesquely silhouetted human figures on the peak, all moving their arms furiously in strange gestures as their incantation drew near its culmination. From what black wells of acherontic fear or feeling from what unplumbed gulfs of extra-cosmic consciousness or obscure, long-latent heredity were those half-articulate thunder-croakings drawn. Presently they began to gather renewed force and coherence as they grew in stark, utter, ultimate frenzy. Help! Help! Father! Father! Yogg-Sothoth! But that was all. The pallid group in the road, still reeling at the indisputably English syllables that had poured thickly and thunderously down from the frantic vacancy beside that shocking altar stone, were never to hear such syllables again. Instead, they jumped violently at the terrific report which seemed to rend the hills, the deafening, cataclysmic peal whose source, be it inner earth or sky, no hearer was ever able to place. A single lightning bolt shot from the purple zenith to the altar stone, and a great tidal wave of viewless force and indescribable stench swept down from the hill to all the countryside. Trees, grass, and underbrush were whipped into a fury, and the frightened crowd at the mountain's base, weakened by the lethal fetter that seemed about to asphyxiate them, were almost hurled off their feet. Dogs howled from the distance, green grass and foliage wilted to a curious sickly yellow-gray, and over field and forest were scattered the bodies of dead whippoorwills. Wow. That is uh, yeah, that some climax. Climax with A? Lensing bolt of lightning? Uh-huh. Always, always. <laughs> a single lightning bolt comes down and cleans it all up. And suddenly it is all over. Yeah, it's over. But, I mean, all the whippoorwills are dead. Obviously, the, the horror is dead. It's destroyed. But it spoke as it as it died. It said, help, help, father, father, yog sathoth Yeah, it spoke in English, this thing. Which is strange. You, you talked a little earlier about how it sort of bided its time. Yeah. Even though it seemed mostly like it was just an animal. It it had intelligence. Yeah, in fact, there's something that Wilbur says earlier in the story that implies, as he studies, so is the the creature, so is his yeah. the, the thing up in the attic is also right. reading and studying and learning. So, you know, they're on a parallel track, which lends itself to what uh, Robert was talking about in an early episode that these are really essentially the same character. One just picks up from the other one. So they they have the same right. purpose and the same intelligence. Between this, this is it resembled the father more. I think. Both of them are necessary. You know, there are two parts of, of the ritual that needs to bring Yogg-Sothoth into this world, which would destroy Earth, wipe it clean, right. is what Wilbur kept talking about. 
when you miss one part, you know, the other part didn't know what to do. I think it lost its purpose. Mm. In a way, it's a little tragic, I think, that this thing is just kind of wandering around, not knowing what it's supposed to do, and it's just eating. And it goes up to Sentinel Hill because it knows it has some significance, but it's not able to complete the ritual that it yeah. needs to do. Yeah. So these guys kind of put it out of its misery in a way. They come down the hill with the sun sort of beaming behind them. It's a heroic moment. Yeah, yeah. And everybody wants to know what's up, but Armitage just says, hey, the thing is gone forever, can't exist again. Yeah. Most of it is returned in some way to its father in some realm outside of the material universe. But then Curtis starts freaking out again about this face that he saw. It says, that face with the red eyes and crinkly albino hair and no chin like the Waitleys. It was a octopus centipede spider kind of thing but there was a half-shaped man's face on top of it and it looked like wizard waitley's only it was yards and yards across <laughs> man that is crazy <laughs> yeah i don't even i can't even picture what this thing looks like it's so disturbing that's really more disturbing that i just i didn't put it together that that Wizard Watley might have actually impregnated his daughter. Yeah, had been the vessel. The vessel for Yogg Sothoth to be able to, which it makes it extra creepy for you know I don't know why that's any more creepy than her getting on with some big ropey tentacle monster. Well, because presumably she's not related to the ropey tentacle. Yeah, exactly. So when you add the you know you put the incest on top of it, it's it just makes it nasty. extra creepy, man. Zebulon speaks up at this point and, and reminds everybody that 15 years ago, old Watley had said that they'd hear a child of Levinis calling its father's name on the top of Sentinel Hill. I don't know if this is quite the way that he thought it was going to turn out, but that prophecy was certainly fulfilled. That's true, yeah. And the fact that there was that prophecy still lends a sort of biblical-ish... Biblical-ish? Is that a word? But it's got that kind of mythological intonation to it. Right, absolutely. That everything uh, came to... It came to the end that was prophecy, but it happened in a more tragic way than anybody could have expected. Right. And the men still want to know, what was this thing? And Armitage responds and gives the sort of 1950s B-movie, you know. <laughs> it is a bit, Explanation yeah, it here is. at the end. It says, it was, well, it was mostly a kind of force that doesn't belong in our part of space. A kind of force that acts and grows and shapes itself by other laws than those of our sort of nature. We have no business calling in such things from outside, and only very wicked people and very wicked cults ever try to. There was some of it in Wilbur Whateley himself, enough to make a devil and a precocious monster of him, and to make his passing out a pretty terrible sight. I'm going to burn his accursed diary, and if you men are wise, you'll dynamite that altar stone up there and pull down all the rings of standing stones on the other hills. Things like that brought down the beings those Whiteleys were so fond of. The beings they were going to let in tangibly to wipe out the human race and drag the earth off to some nameless place for some nameless purpose. But as to this thing we've just sent back, the Whiteleys raised it for a terrible part in the doings that were to come. It grew fast and big from the same reason that Wilbur grew fast and big. But it beat him because it had a greater share of the outsideness in it. You needn't ask how Wilbur called it out of the air. He didn't call it out. It was his twin brother. But it looked more like the father than he did. <laughs> and that's uh and that's the end. Yeah, that's the end of the story. 
has that italicized ending. I mean, I don't think it's a surprise to anybody that it was a twin brother. Maybe it was the first time um, I read this. I can't remember. Yeah, I think it was. I was surprised by it. I have to say that the whole idea of the incest and all that, that was after the fact. When I just read it, I just thought it was a, a monster. This was a great read. I mean, I was actually sad that I, I knew I was pretty familiar with the story from when I read it. I don't know, maybe when I was a teenager. Oh, I've read it again recently. I read it maybe uh, two or three years ago. Yeah, well, I read it again, but I know everything. I wish I could go through it the first time again because some of these things were quite surprising to me. As I'd mentioned earlier, when, when Wilbur gets killed, that totally took me by surprise. You know, I didn't expect that to happen. The plot in this, I think, is really good. Oh, yeah. People accuse Lovecraft of just having events happen, or he always focuses on it as just sort of one weird occurrence, and it's the weirdness of it that interests him. But here we have definite plot. Something terrible happens, and then we go, but wait a minute, we cut back to Miskatonic University, and we have some scenes there, and then we come back. You know, it's got an almost sort of cinematic feel to it and a pacing, and I think it's outstanding. I, more so than almost any other story that he's written up to this point. It's got a real motivated plot to page turner i think it's great but it has been criticized as being sort of you know, we talked about this a little bit but it's a good versus evil story which really isn't lovecraft's mm -hmm. type of thing donald r burleson he suggested that the tale be read like a, a satire of the typical good versus evil story and the reason why he says that is because in the quote in the necronomicon it says man rules now where they the old ones ruled once they shall soon rule where man rules now and that's saying that it is inevitable that they're going to come back. So this victory is really not that big of a victory in the grand scale of things. And in fact, right. it's kind of a, a, a joke. It's like, aha, uh -huh, I'm, I'm the valiant man and we did this thing. It's like, well, not really. It's, it's nothing compared to the gods. I think Lovecraft says, remember how I said that he was relating to Armitage, the character. I don't think he means this as a joke. I, I think Lovecraft really gets into the idea of good beating evil. And, and I'll, re I'll read you this quote from Lovecraft. This is what he said. I found myself psychologically identifying with one of the characters, an aged scholar who finally combats the menace towards the end. And he said that, uh, and there was a letter to August Derleth, that he doesn't mean this as a parody. He just liked the character and he wanted him to win and, and have a victory. And, and even Lovecraft appreciates yeah. that type of thing. I mean, I honestly don't think it's a parody of any kind. I, I, when Lovecraft does that, he writes something like Reanimator. It's pretty yeah. obvious to me. But this it just seems to, you know, this is a ripping yarn, you know, it's just a good adventure story. Because it's heroic and it has a traditional good versus evil thing, I think that the maybe the tendency is for us to say, well, Lovecraft would have been winking and nudging if he'd have written something yeah. like that. You know, it's below him somehow. Not at all. The only thing about it that I think is maybe overboard is the excessive sort of explanation at the end. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does have that kind of B-movie sort of feel to it, which is something that was in mm -hmm. um, The Last Test. I, I had that kind of same feeling. Yeah. And those were both written closely to each other. So it might be just sort of what Lovecraft is particularly into at this point. And this is, you know, another thing. You know, I mentioned this earlier that when Lovecraft went out to uh, Wilbraham, Massachusetts, and that's sort of where he got the inspiration for, for Dunwich. His friend Edith Mittner, uh, who he met through the amateur journalism movement, that Lovecraft kind of gets this reputation of being a hermit and not like going out and not having friends and not dealing with that, which is totally not the case. He traveled all over the United States and he made lots of friends through these and he would go visit them. Yeah. And in this particular story, you know, when he went out to go visit her and that's where he got all, all of his inspiration for, for his stories, he's a sociable guy. And yeah. You get it in his letters that he's not this weird, freaky kind of character like he's really cordial he's funny and i could see why he would make all these friends and these people would be excited for him to come visit them yeah absolutely the moodus noises the 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 rumbling that happened you know that wilbur was born um nine months after there was this sort of 
earthquake almost right that happened in the Dunwich area, and that was somewhat based on a real phenomenon. Yeah, it, it is called the Moodus Noises, which is named for the town of Moodus, right. Connecticut. Right, right, right. I do remember it. Yeah, there were like subterranean rumblings and cracking noises and that type of thing that people couldn't right. figure out. That had been happening for a couple hundred years, way back when the town was first uh, settled. And I think that they just suspect that it's some kind of plate shifting or, or something like that. But I don't even think it's still been figured right. out what that was no. or what it is. But I think that that played somewhat into into the story. He was he knew about this unusual tectonic mm. activity, and, and, and so he kind of brought it in. And there's a lot of mention of uh, pagan holidays in the uh, in the story. Yeah. It's somewhat significant, right? There's a, a part where he says something about candle mass, but they have a different name for it right. around there. Which is, uh, it's one of the celebrations of the Witch's Sabbath. It's called Imbolic, the banishing of winter. Well, well a lot of that, too, is um, is Celtics. Right. I mean, Halloween is, is Celtic, and then May, which is on the other end of it. So they have the spring holiday and then the, the fall or the autumn, if you're in England. Yeah, like well, Pergus not. Right, 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 exactly. And... You know, it's just harking back to an older time. And, you know, there was also a lot of, or there still is a lot of standing stones in New England, like these hills and things. Mm-hmm. You know, the, Lovecraft talks about those quite a bit. You mean this, when you say, you mean that when he makes reference to, like, the uh, the stones on the top of these hills that might have been... In- they could be found throughout New England. Specifically, there's an area called Dogtown between Gloucestershire and Rockport. And Lovecraft visited the region in 1927. He doesn't mention Dogtown specifically, but there are megaliths there. And there's also other areas, Mystery Hill in Salem, uh, but that was actually a bogus megalith site. Oh, really? The 19th century farmer had built it up to kind of make it look like an old Indian site uh. and get people interested. And actually, something like that happened here in England. There are, in North Yorkshire, mm-hmm. there is this area of standing stones, which looks a little like Stonehenge, but uh, a rich guy that lived up there had it built in the, the late 1800s. Because there was, he had all these workers that were out of work, and he goes, "Hey, let's let's make a tourist attraction." So he got all these guys to dig up all these stones, and they they built one of those. So this happens actually, where people and it was, and it, they actually built it to the correct scale. It wasn't a tiny little Stonehenge. Oh no, <laughs> no, he didn't accidentally write out the inches mark and yeah. hand them the plans to it. Yeah. In danger of being crushed by a dwarf. That's happened in England, and that's that's happened in the states, but. These things are, are common. I've never been around New England to be able to check this stuff out, but I, I believe they're still around. I'm going to try that here in Santa Monica. You're going to build some standing stones? Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to put like a monolith up on the roof of my apartment building. Like the Indians put this here. <laughs> I'm sure they'll believe it. Uh, but Chad, the apartment was built in the 1950s. Shut up! So about the Whippoorwills, Lovecraft actually wrote a little essay called Mrs. Mitner Estimates and Recollections. And he wrote this in 1934, and he says, I saw the ruinous, deserted old Randolph Beebe house where the Whippoorwills cluster abnormally and learned that these birds are feared by the rustics as evil psychopomps. It is whispered that they linger and flutter around houses where death is approaching, hoping to catch the soul of the departed as it leaves. If the soul eludes them, they disperse in quiet disappointment, but sometimes they set up a a cuckold's clamor which makes the watchers turn pale and mutter, with the air of hushed, awestruck portentiness, (laughs) which only a backwards Yankee can assume. They got him. It's really cool that they all die at the end of the, the whippoorwills falling out of the sky. Well, yeah, kind of. It's full circle. Yeah, because they were definitely associated with Watleys. So mm-hmm. when the when all of the Watleys were finally killed off, that the whippoorwills kind of went with them. Great 
device. I hate to let this go because I, I, I love the story so much, but we're kind of we've kind of exhausted all there is to talk about it. Hey, you know what we have next? The electric executioner. That's what we're doing next. Really? I have no idea anything about that story, but yeah, the electric executioner. The electric which, executioner? Which is a cool sounding title, be a good metal song or something, but I'm disappointed to see it's a revision done with Adolf DeCastro, so there's a possibility oh, no. that it's going to be... We're doing another DeCastro story, are we? Yeah, yeah, but you know what? Maybe it'll be. Maybe this time it'll be good. I don't know anything about it. No, I've never I've never read it either. I, I doubt it'll be a Dunwich Horror, but I'm, maybe it'll yeah. be a little... Maybe it'll be a little gem. It know? might be a surprise. It might be for surprise. You know, I was uh, quite happy with Yig. I was too. That was a good one. But that was Zelia Bishop. Now, after the Electric Executioner, we do have another collaboration, another couple of collaborations he did with her, the yeah. Mound and uh, Medusa's Coil. So those right. are coming up as well. And then after that, we're going to have The Whisper in Darkness and mm-hmm. At the Mountains of Madness. So yeah. there's some serious, serious stuff coming up. I've been reading the script of At the Mountains of Madness. Oh, you have? You've uh, got a hold of it? Yeah, the Del Toro script. I mean, I don't know if it's been changed. I assume it has been since right, then, right. but a listener uh, sent it to me, and I've been looking through it. It's really cool, man. It's oh, good. Yeah. I hope that movie is actually getting made. It's neat. Oh, wow. There's a rumor going around that actually uh, Joshi is an advisor on. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I hope that's all true. You know, the last I heard, though, the studio hadn't written the check yet. You know? Oh, really? So Del Toro's saying, hey, I think it's going to happen, but until we're in production. Until I... money starts getting put in our coffers, we're not... Well, it's, it's a lot to ask to fund a horror movie at that level. It just doesn't happen very often. No. Most horror movies are made for very little money. And to make a gigantic spectacle, you know, it's a horror story. I mean, there's yeah. no getting around that. You know? No. So it's, it's, this isn't Avatar. This is... No. People flipping out and going crazy and, and learning the history of the world and everything. So... Yeah. You know, I'll be surprised if it if it happens. It could be. A, I mean, it could be a huge bomb. It might be a really cool movie, yeah. but it, it might just be not what general audiences are are looking for. Yeah. And I mean, that's. I mean, you got to kind of be realistic about that because most people don't like horror films. You know, it won't have that universal feel or appeal that like Avatar had. Mm-hmm. You know, which it's a very simple story and it's very fantastic and it's got great visuals right. and it's kind of. You know, the good guys win and everybody right yeah. thing is done and the bad guys get punished and but not in Mountains of Madness. <laughs> I'm surprised all the time. I'll say, Hey, I'm going to see, you know, whatever the horror movie is that's out at the time and people will look Oh, I don't I don't see those movies. Yeah, I don't go to horror films. Yeah. Just blanket, I don't do it. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it always is a surprise. Really? Why? To me, they're like comedies in the same way. It's it's just an enjoyable thing. You get set up and then there's the scare and then you move on and that you know, it's great stuff, but a lot of people they don't they don't dig on it. Well, um, with that, I want to say thank you to Andrew Lehman, who always does a wonderful job. And everybody, go to the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society's website, CthulhuLives.org, and get the Dunwich Horror Radio play, because it's great. It is really, really good. Thanks again, Robert M. Price, for coming on the show and helping yeah. us through a bit of this story. That guy's awesome. He's great. And you should listen to his. Uh, he's got a couple of his own shows, Point of Inquiry, yep. obviously, that he does. But there's also The Bible Geek. You know, have questions about the Bible or, or want to hear somebody who's an excellent expert at that kind of thing. He's got such an interesting point of view because he's steeped in this Christian theology, but he's he's an atheist. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. He knows all about the historicity of Jesus Christ. I actually I wrote a joke when uh, Wilbur Watley was born. I was going to say, Robert, I, I don't think that he ever existed. And I want you to disprove that. <laughs> I didn't get to work it in there. He's a good guy. So, okay, that's all we got. And we're going to be on The Electric Executioner next week. Next week. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And this has been the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. 
hpodcraft.com.